Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more, of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name's Paul. I'm part of the team here, and I as well welcome you um, as we gather to worship and hear from the Word. Um, Just before we get into this morning's uh, text, let's take a a moment to pray together. Uh, God of all grace, We have sung of of your redemption, of your kindness, of your mercy, of the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, and we rejoice. Lord, would you um, meet us here as we open your word? Would you allow us um, to grasp the truth of what it says? Would you cause us to respond? with hearts full of praise. Would you strengthen our wills to walk in obedience? And would you do these things for the glory of your great name? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in her book, The Defining Decade, psychologist Meg Jay tells of an experiment. It was an experiment that sought to understand the connection between decisions made in the moment and how they relate to one's view of the future. In the experiment, there were 25 young people who entered virtual reality, and as as they made their way through that world, they came upon a mirror. And when they looked into it, they saw a virtual representation of their current selves, their 20-something self. Well, then another 25 people were put, put through the same exercise. They walked into this virtual world, They had the same uh, experience with one exception. As they came upon this mirror, they looked and they saw an older version of themselves. They were shown what they would look like decades later. Afterward, the subjects were asked to allocate money to a hypothetical retirement savings account. And interestingly, the subjects who saw their current selves, their young selves, 
they set aside an average payment of $73.90. But those who saw their future selves, they set more aside, more than double the amount, $178.10. And the experiment, it demonstrates how one's thoughts of the future will, will influence present decisions. It speaks to what psychologists call present bias, which is our natural disposition to favor the present and discount the future. Or it's the tendency to focus on uh, the present more than future needs. See, it's a human tendency that, that contributes to issues in our culture. Issues like procrastination, poor planning, immediate gratification, impatience, and rage, and then it further contributes to a variety of social problems, substance abuse, addiction, gambling, poverty, crime, broken marriages, strained relationships. And I think we'll discover that we too are susceptible to this way of thinking. We can embrace a now or never mindset. If we examine our lives, we may see ways in which our disposition to prioritize now uh, comes at the future cost and is negatively impacting us. But today, as we uh, enter into our text, it reawakens us to the big picture of God's redemptive story, picture of the future that is held for those who trust in Jesus. And, and it, it invites us to orient our hearts and minds in light of what's to come. It helps us to, to locate our story within the greater story, the grand narrative, the story that, that God is bringing to a glorious culmination. It reminds us that our present circumstances, our current struggles, and even perhaps our current success isn't all that life is about. Right? There's more to life than, than just the here and now, more than what is immediately before us. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been walking through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul um, in the first century, and it was written to the church that gathered in the Mediterranean city of Corinth. And throughout chapter 15, Paul has been teaching about resurrection, and specifically the resurrection uh, and the reality of it, of Jesus, uh, his resurrection, uh, the hope of resurrection for those who believe, the nature of resurrection, and the implications of resurrection for our lives. And as we come to, to our text, we're going to be looking at three things. This is our, our outline for, for today. The wonder of resurrection life, waiting for resurrection life, and walking in resurrection life. Here's our first point. The wonder of resurrection life. Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So Paul begins by restating what he had taught earlier in chapter 15. Looking back at verses 21 and 22, Paul says this. He says, For as by a man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
And this is what we need to, to focus in on here. It's the phrase, for in Adam all die. This is what Paul is, is speaking about. See, Paul refers to flesh and blood, and as he does this, he is saying that all people, all humanity, descended from Adam, born in his likeness and his image, will die. That all humanity is destined for death, which doesn't come as a big surprise, I hope, to most of us, right? It's the one certainty that we all live with, right? It's the one guarantee in this life that all humanity share, our bodies are corrupt, we're perishing, and we cannot last beyond the years that God has ordained. See, apart from God's intervention, our bodies will fail, right? Our hearts will stop, our lungs will, will cease to fill with air, and we will die. And the reason for this is the sin of Adam, which was his, his willful rebellion against God, his rejection of God's rule in his life. And this, this sin, it passed down to us. We inherited it. See, all people are born into sin. And as a result, like Adam, humanity is cut off from God, spiritually dead and physically limited to the years that God has ordained. And what Paul is saying is that, that when physical life ends, the spiritually dead cannot enter into or exist in God's kingdom because dead things cannot enter a living kingdom. Now, for a moment, just jump down to verse 53. Notice what Paul says there. He says, for the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. Must. See, unless God intervenes, and the mortal person undergoes a fundamental change, a, a conversion from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, the mortal person will perish. And what that means is physical death and spiritual separation from all the blessedness of God and his kingdom forever. But notice, notice verse 51. It says this, but behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Behold, Paul, Paul, he wants our attention. He's saying, wake up. There's good news, right? Humanity's dying, but there's good news. Wake up. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And, and when Paul speaks of mystery, we need to understand that he's, he's not speaking of something um, in, in the same way we would think of mystery today. It's, it, it's not something that's difficult or impossible to, to understand. Paul is not telling us something that is mysterious, like vague or foggy or veiled so that we can't comprehend it. But rather here, mystery refers to something that was previously unknown, but now is revealed. So, so what is that mystery? What's he referring to? We'll look again at, at 51. We shall not all sleep, and that is die, but we shall all be changed. See, in contrast to this bad news that, that the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, the Apostle Paul presents good news. See, not all are perishing. Not all who are in Adam remain in Adam. The good news is that God has intervened 
that there is a day coming that those who belong to him through believing in the resurrection of Jesus and trusting in him for salvation, they will experience the fullness of resurrection life. Now, part of, of the mystery that, that Paul is, is revealing is in how this will happen. So we look at verse 52, continuing there. He says, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, notice Paul's language, right? He's, he's being a little poetic here. He wants to capture our imagination, right? He, he, wants, he wants to stir our desires in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. He's stirring wonder that, that we would see that there is something incredible coming. He's stirring wonder, wanting us to um, be amazed at the miraculous that is promised. You know, I'm sure if you've read through Scripture, you've encountered many miraculous stories. You think of the parting of the Red Sea. You think of um, Elijah being whisked up to heaven. You think of story after story of God's power being expressed in wonderful, miraculous ways. We read about it, and, and I think we wonder, man, what would that have been like? What would it have been like to be there when Jesus heals the blind man? When, when he raises the dead girl, what would that have been like? Well, Christ City, do you know that there's a day coming when you will not only watch the miraculous, but you will participate in it? Like, this, Paul wants us to, to be amazed and to wonder at what Jesus is doing and will do in those who believe. Now, there's a, a couple things as we, as we read this line. It should stir wonder, but it should also bring caution. There's a couple things to be attentive to here for us. The first is this, that, that it's coming suddenly. This wonderful day when, when Jesus comes, when, when people are raised from the dead and people are changed, it, it's coming suddenly. See, before we actually have time to fully grasp what is going on, like, like flicking a switch and a room filling full of light, you know, where you cannot really perceive the time between the two, that's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. It's in the moment. It's, it's like what we would say in a split second. And in that moment, there's something beyond our imagination. We're changed, still ourselves, and yet wholly different. But it will come suddenly. And the second thing we need to attend to is this. It will come certainly. See, he says, in a moment, suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. See, and what we need to see with, with this phrase about the trumpet, it's a little bit random for us. It's, it's, it's not something we think about. We hear trumpet, we think Miles Davis, perhaps. But trumpets were significant in Scripture. And what Paul is doing, he's locating the event in history. He's saying, this is a real thing, people. Pay attention. It's going to come suddenly, and it's going to come Certainly. See, the, the last trumpet, it refers to a div divine signal that is given to announce the return of Jesus. 
to gather his church and to inaugurate his kingdom over all creation. See, Paul is pointing to a specific day that will bring history as we know it to its conclusion. See, it's important for us to see that, that Paul is not just speculating here. He's not speculating about the future. That this, this might happen. He's not drawing upon some sort of mythological idea. It's not wishful thinking. But he is revealing what God has said. He is revealing what the sovereign God over all of history has said. And he's saying, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, Jesus, he he spoke of this very thing. Luke 21, 34 to 36. uh, Hear this, Christ City. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, and it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. A day will come unexpectedly, suddenly, certainly, And some will be ready, they'll be spiritually alert, they'll be attentive to the Lord's call upon their lives, trusting in Jesus for salvation until he is revealed in all his glory. I hope and trust that 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 is, is you. But for some, it's described that he will come as a thief in the night, unexpected unaware that there's, there's, there's an intruder in the house. He comes unannounced for some. And to this one, to the one who has rejected him, his, his coming is, is utter horror. Because there's a realization of God's wrath and how it's coming to focus. But to the one who has placed their faith in Jesus... It's completely the opposite. Feelings of inexpressible joy. Look at verse 52. It says, The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. So this event, the resurrection of the dead, is going to happen in two stages. First, those who have fallen asleep, which means those who have died, they will be raised first. Be given new bodies like Jesus, Bodies that will never wear out or grow old or perish. And then second, those who are alive when Jesus returns, they will experience a transformation. They will not experience death, but they will undergo this transformation from a mortal body to an immortal body. See, on that day, some will be raised, some will be changed, but none get left behind, pun intended. But, but here's, here's the question. What is the inexpressible joy in this? What is the biggest thing about this day? We may, may think it's because sin is gone. And that, that is a big thing. Death no longer has dominion over us. That's a big thing. Reunited with loved one, that's a big thing. But these aren't the greatest things about that day. All good things, but not the greatest thing. I I think we we have to be attentive to 
to two realities of that day that ought to just cause us to jump out of our seats. You ready for it? Yeah? Okay, here we go. Two things. See, the trumpet signals that will be gathered to Jesus. And it signals that we will be changed. And here are the two things. We'll be with him and we will be like him. This, this is the ultimate wonder of that resurrection day. We will be with him, we'll be with Jesus, and we will be like Jesus. Fanny Crosby was a prolific hymn writer of the mid-19th century. She's credited with writing, hear this, more than 8,000 hymns and gospel songs. More than 8,000. But more remarkable than this is that she had done so in spite of her blindness. Now, one day upon meeting Fanny, a preacher came up to her and said, with, with the best intentions, I think it a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he has showered you with so many gifts. And Fanny, who had heard similar remarks before, she, she politely responded, you know, if I had been given a choice, I would still choose blindness. Why? For when I die, the first face that I will see will be Jesus. What's her greatest treasure? It's him. It's him. When I die, his is the face that I'm going to see. The wonder of resurrection life. Hear me, Christ City. Dead people who have no business in God's living kingdom are graciously given access, invited in through the death of the one who didn't deserve to die. And we will be ushered into his presence. We will know him face to face. We will be like him. We will fully enter in and behold his glory. We will not only behold it, but we will share in it. Not only share in it, but we will reflect it because we're like him. We'll be with him and like him forever. What good news. Amen. Yes. But there's, there's another question. A lot of questions this morning. What about now? What about now? And this brings us to our second point, waiting for resurrection life. Verse 54 and 55 say, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is or victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, these words may be familiar to you. Perhaps you've heard them in a sermon, sung them in a worship song. And, and Paul is basically riffing on two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, 14. And, and what he's, he's basically, he's taunting death. He's mocking death. And he's reminding his readers that death no longer has power over their lives, no longer has power over those who believed. 
For those who believe, death is not to be feared as something that can ultimately harm or destroy. As N.T. Wright says, in Christ we have become people over whom death has no control. And while this is true, I think we recognize that sometimes this can be confusing. That this isn't our experience. Because death can feel foreboding in our world. Right? We see and feel death's devastating effects full force in our world. Right? And at times in our lives. See, unfortunately, the words of Paul at times have been taken out of context. Right? In sermons and in songs, people are led to believe that what Paul is saying applies to our lives now. That his taunt of death is a, a present-day reality. But that's not what Paul is saying. Note, notice these two key words in, the, in this uh, verse. When and then. When and then. Not here and now. See, Paul is pointing to a future reality, a reality when death will be no more. But that's not our experience yet. See, there will be a day when death is swallowed up. There will be a day when death forever loses its sting. But that's on the day of Jesus' return. And and it's not yet fully realized. See, death does touch our lives, believer and unbeliever alike. And the reality of sin and death, it still pains us. And we ought not to minimize or deny or discard it, pretend like it doesn't exist. It's real. Life is hard. Sin and death have consequences. And it hurts us. See, we, we still live within the constraints of a sin-cursed world where, where seeing loved ones struggle with infirmity, it pains us. Feeling loss of a loved one, it grieves us. Witnessing countless lives uh, destroyed, devastated by wars and tragedies, it, it saddens us deeply. And, and though we look forward to this great hope and we wonder at what is to come, We're faced with the reality that the the here and now is hard. So what do we do? We wait. We wait. And I, I think that's part of what Paul is reminding us here. That hope for the future calls for patient endurance now. We wait upon the promises of God, the promises of what's to come, and we trust in the promises that we have for now. We wait. And this is what the Christian life is. Throughout Scripture, we see that the Christian life is a life of waiting, waiting upon the Lord. It's a theme throughout God's story. God's people in Egypt waited some 400 years for deliverance. The Israelites, they're in the wilderness and some 40 years before they reach the promised land. They wait. The prophets speak of waiting. Isaiah 30, 41. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. 
Throughout all of the Psalms, countless Psalms speak of waiting. Psalm 33:20 says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Or as we look to the New Testament in James, we hear this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. God graciously invites us to wait on him. And part of the reason he does that is so that we would look to him, so that we would grow in godliness, so that we'd become better equipped to love and serve others. But waiting is hard. Right? Waiting is hard. Do you agree? Yeah. Waiting is hard. I was reminded of this this week as I was working on this sermon. So many ways in which you know, I just wanted to skip to the end. <laughs> and, and God was patiently saying, wait, wait and work, wait. You may, may not maybe see this in yourself, but let me ask a couple questions. Do you get frustrated when the web page takes more than three seconds to load? <laughs> Have you ever found yourself standing in front of the microwave, warming up your lunch, going, this is taking an eternity, counting down the numbers? Have you ever felt like, like it's the end of life when you catch red light after red light after red light? Have you felt that? Yeah. <laughs> See, uh, we don't like to wait. We tire of waiting. Jen Wilkin talks about this, and she says, to be, to be human is to do daily battle with impatience. And, and we can be an impatient people, right? We can see it in our driving. We may see it in our spending, in self-medicating, in our attempts to manipulate or control others. Maybe it's a friend, our spouse, one of our kids. See, in this present biased culture where instant gratification is esteemed, where the will and desire of the individual is exalted, we can be swept along by the idea that waiting isn't worth it. Right? Why wait when, when I can have the comfort and pleasure and happiness, the rewards that I want now? Why wait when, when I'm, I'm getting what I need, what I want right now. See, in certain areas of our lives, we struggle to see the big picture. And waiting on God isn't on our radar. So what, what do we do? We do what thinks serves us best in the moment. And this may seem like a small thing, right? Impatience may seem small in the list of, of bigger wrongs in our world. Right? Admittedly, there are many things that, that are much worse than a little impatience. Right? We, can, we can choose to choose the, the slow grocery line and find ourselves a little ir irritated, and, and that's no big deal. Or the kids don't respond immediately to our instruction. We're a little bit short with them. 
It's understandable. But could it be that, that it's a worse problem than it, than it appears? Perhaps the impatient heart is far more treacherous than we comprehend. Think about road rage. Right? When the impatient heart explodes in all of its destructive capacity, that's impatience. And, and we might not struggle to that, to that extreme, but we would be wise to see how the same heart issue for the, and the same sin is behind the various expressions of impatience. See, at the heart of impatience is distrust of God. At the heart of impatience is exaltation of self. At the heart of impatience is grasping for what you believe to be rightfully yours. See, present bias isn't, isn't the fundamental problem, and, and even impatience isn't the fundamental problem. But, but these are symptoms of the deepest problem that we struggle with, which is, is simply sin. A self-centered life that is holding God apart from one. And it's only as we, we hit the fundamental problem of sin that we can begin to work on waiting. And this leads us to our third point, walking in resurrection life. Verses 56 and 57 says this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this feels a little bit cryptic, but, but what Paul is doing, he's simply distilling the gospel down and, and the good news of, of salvation in Jesus. He's distilling it down into a simple phrase. In verse 56, he is explaining the problem of sin. And in verse 57, he is declaring the answer for sin. And he wants us to see that, that hope for our future and strength for waiting is found in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So let's look at that. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So the law that Paul is referring to is the moral law of God, you know, which is summarized in, in the Ten Commandments. And God graciously gave that law as a guide for how huma humanity was to flourish. Right? In it, he, he gave a picture of what true humanity was intended to be. A people living joyfully, thriving under the, the reign of a truly good king. But as much as the law shows us how life ought to be, there's also a flip side to it. See, as, as much as the law displayed what is truly good, it also reveals what is truly bad. It reveals what humanity is truly like. See, people's lives, they're, they're ordered and directed by desire fueled by sin rather than the desire to please God and live by His law. That's what sin is. John Piper describes it this way. He says, what is sin? But it is the glory of God not honored. It is the holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. 
the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. And and sin has its power because the law of God has defined it and demanded consequences for it. That's where the power comes from. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That is what the law calls for. And what Paul is saying is that sin, given power by the law, finds its fullest and most harmful expression in death. But where sin is removed... Death is powerless to cause lasting harm. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God in his unmatched mercy and grace, he set about to reverse sin's curse and to redeem fallen humanity. Look at Romans 8, 3 and 4. It says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to flesh, but according to the spirit. And what this means is that that Jesus, what he did is he lived perfectly when we couldn't. He was without sin and he satisfied the requirements of the law. And then he took our sin, our law-breaking upon himself, and paid the debt of sin that we deserved. And, and his resurrection is his vindication, right? It's God's declaration that Jesus satisfied the law and that as we put faith in him, the law is satisfied for us too, right? Believing in him believing he died for you, was raised, you receive the perfect law-keeping and you inherit the life that he earned, everlasting life. See, because of Jesus and what he's done, we have hope for the life to come. But but there's another piece here that, that we need to see. It's not just about the future, it's also about the now. Right? There's freedom from what death threatens in Jesus. But we also need to grasp that there is freedom from what sin imposes now, right? In Jesus, you have a new ruler over your life, a new king, and you can begin to live in new ways in in his kingdom. In Jesus, you have a, a new master, a good master, a fully gracious master, who now you are empowered to live for and follow and believe and trust. In Jesus, he he gives us not only the hope of of resurrection, but he gives us the power we need to live fully now. Look at uh, Peter, 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All things. All things for life, that's now, and godliness. In him we have all things 
See, the wonder of resurrection life is that death has no power over us. And the wonder of Jesus' victory is that sin has no power over us now. And I I don't know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I don't know that we fully grasp this. If you are in Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You have all the power, all the resources, all things to say no to sin. That's what Jesus' victory means in the here and now. The power to say no to sin. And this means that that our present desires need not rule our lives. That God has given us grace to say no. It means that we can put off the tyranny of the immediate, not be dominated by immediate gratification, not be ruled by impatience. And I think this is what it means to walk now in resurrection life. It means to walk fully believing that you have a new master, a new king, that sin no longer has dominion over you, but you are free to walk and live in the kingdom, in the here and now, until the day when Jesus makes all things new. This is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Right? One day, we will be with him. We will be like him. And in the here and now, he's given us all that we need to walk free from sin and to live new life. Let's pray. Now, Jesus, I admit that um, I struggle to believe these things. That what I, what I say with my mouth and what, what I believe in my heart, there, there's tension and struggle there. I confess that to you. And Lord, I suspect that, that I'm not alone in this. And so I ask that you would grant us the grace of all things that we need for life and godliness here and now. And I pray that you would strengthen and encourage our hope as we look to the day when you return. I pray that you would stir wonder in us at that day when we will be with you and we will be like you. I pray that that would be fuel for our lives when when life is hard, when pain is overwhelming, when despair is pressing in, but that we would look again at the bigger story of who God is and what he's done, and that that would just give us hope, that that would cause us to, to wait well, trusting in the Lord. Lord, would you do that in us, I pray, in Jesus' name.